Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Dr. Aaron Thierry. Aaron is an ecologist by training. Uh, He spent years in the Arctic studying permafrost and earth system science, the impact on climate. And he recently went back to university to do a PhD in understanding the communication of movements, how to get people more involved in social movements. Because as he said, it has become clear that scientists just sharing the facts with the public about the climate crisis is not (laughs) generating enough change. And it's certainly generating no change with policymakers. We need stories. We need to figure out how to appeal to people to get them on board. He says that activism begins at home, in the classroom, uh, that the role of academics is crucial, that academics need to be seeing their teaching as a form of activism. They need to be communicating directly with students the reality of the situation and encouraging them to take action. We need to be stopping young graduates joining the fossil fuel industry. And we need to have clear demands across an ecosystem of activism. Aaron thinks we need a decentralized movement of lots of different groups and lots of different people taking different forms of action, but with one coherent message. And for now, that message should be keeping fossil fuels in the ground. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. Aaron, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So could you give, like, what are you a doctor in? <laughs> so so I'm a doctor in ecology. Um, right. I did a PhD uh, 10 years ago, um, and that was in ecosystem ecology and uh, species interactions mm-hmm. with the environment. And, um, and that led me into kind of earth system science. And I went mm-hmm. and did a postdoc where I worked up in the Arctic studying climate impacts. Oh, wow. And, yeah, so I was on the front lines a little bit. Um, I, I mostly was doing modeling, but I was part of a really international team. And we were basically trying to understand how, how the Arctic's responding to the rapidly changing climate and what that means for the ecosystems up there um, mm-hmm. and how that then has not gone implications back again onto the climate because there's feedbacks that kick in. Um, permafrost starts thawing out. And that releases carbon dioxide and methane, which then are greenhouse gases and accelerates climate change. So mm-hmm. like we were trying to better get a handle on that. Um, but it was, yeah, um, me as a scientist uh, initially. Um, but I'm, I'm currently back at university studying for another PhD, but that's in sociology and looking at social movements and, and the climate movement. Excellent. So I've been on a bit of a journey between, between then and now. And what uh, led you to take that decision? What made you think that um, science comms uh, movements would be an important part of the puzzle? 
Yeah. Uh, so I guess I always went into science hoping that it would be socially useful and that the findings that we'd discover would be helpful um, and help inform policy making and decision making. Right. That's that's the that's the ideal. Right. That, that's what we were all kind of brought up to believe that evidence uh, and rational decision making will will kind of win out. And I was quite probably quite naive, and I really bought into that. And um, so it kind of increasingly became clear to me that the science that I was doing was was kind of useless <laughs> at trying to okay. to bring about that those changes, or at least help inform those debates. Because um, we know <laughs> we've known for a really long time what the problem is, um, and yet emissions keep going up year on year. And that's not to do with a lack of information. It's not to do with a lack of understanding. Mm. It's to do with the fact we have a political system that is completely incapable of responding to, to this uh, crisis and is, is responsible for the crisis that we're in, as I see it. So, so then it was, became increasingly the question for me, like, how do I actually be part of the, the effort? The, if it's a political crisis uh, with social causes, then how, how can I be useful in a political sense and um, that's then led me into activism um, and then that's led me back to study activism and how we can be more effective as activists and, and um, the interesting kind of way in which science and activism work together and, and shape each other. Let's talk about that what what do you see thus far because immediately when you were talking there the question the rabbit hole one of the rabbit holes I want to go down over the next hour um, would be to better understand how you think science can involve activism in a way that is out with protesting on the streets? Like what can we actually do in our professional settings to protest more against what is going on? Sure, I mean, I, th I think there's a kind of a whole spectrum of things that we can be doing. I, mm. I don't think there's any one correct approach that every academic has to follow. Um, sure. But I think there is so much more that we could be doing. And I think it starts with that understanding that, um, you know, we need to build social movements powerful enough to confront the vested interests are maintaining the status quo and, and mm -hmm. blocking climate action. Um, so if that's the starting point, then the question is like, okay, what does that look like? And I think partly it's, you know, what's it look like in our classrooms when we're doing our teaching, yeah. right? Um, so are we actually equipping students with the knowledge, with the ideas, with the skills that they're going to need in order to build those movements and, and channel, 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 challenge, sorry, the right, um, actors. Mm -hmm. So that means, um, I think, um, perhaps being much more um, willing to talk about the need to build power and to challenge power in our lessons, right, in our yeah. lectures. And, and what does that actually look like? And what can we learn from history about that? And, you know, where are good examples right now of where that's being done? Like, students really need to know that information and they're not getting yeah. it currently in many lectures, especially, you know, if they're doing a natural science course uh, like I was. Mm -hmm. um, I think... We also need uh, to look at how we can work with our research. Like how, how can we actually redesign our research questions so that they're actually answering questions about how do we support movements? What are good targets for them to be going to, to challenge, right? There's some really interesting yeah. work that was just published by researchers in Harvard this week, where they'd um, basically done a survey of all the kind of greenwashing adverts that had been put out by um, big oil companies and big, um, you know, airlines and things, right. And showing just how they're trying, they, they use like proper social science methods of discourse analysis, but then they use them to help kind of unveil 
the ways in which these companies are misleading the public and greenwashing, yeah. right? Yeah. And that then helps arm uh, activists with you know, credible um, scientific information that they can use to, to, to push for change and, and to direct campaigns at the right places. Right. Okay. So the intersection of science and activism then would be become would become science informing activism of where what buttons to push and what levers to pull, rather than saying here's a bunch of facts that you can go and tell the public because actually, public and the elites they don't they don't really care about facts. Well, I think facts are always important. I wouldn't ever throw, throw that sure, out. Sure. Right? Sure. That was a gross generalization. <laughs> yes. The thing. The thing is. So the way I think of it is. We have various different deficits in public understanding and, and mm -hmm. public ability to push for change, right? One of those deficits is still an information deficit. I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, although I think that's less now than it, it was, right? I think most people understand we're in a climate crisis. I think that's yeah. kind of sunk in. But like, what do we do about it? Maybe still people need to have more, more idea as to what solutions there are available and so on. Yeah. But then there's kind of another problem, which is kind of like, salience deficit of like how immediate does it feel and like how 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 often do we talk about it how often do we kind of engage with climate change on a day-to-day -day basis and i think that's like a communications deficit right that, that's where we need our creatives our storytellers our artists our, you know to finding ways of like helping people engage on the, in, a, in a meaningful sense like with with what it means for their own lives and what they want to do with their lives and, and the kind of communities they want to be part of and all of those things right so that's a that's another challenge, and then there's a third challenge, which I think is probably the most important of all, which is the kind of power deficit, and the fact that we're just completely outgunned at the moment still by the power of the fossil fuel industry and their allies. And if we're going to take that on, which we have to, you know, there is good efforts already out there trying to do that. But if we're going to succeed at that, then we're going to need to grow that power as a movement and build much more powerful and effective. Um, uh, and interconnected movements really so that's how i see it now <laughs> um so i think we need to do all three of those right we need to and depending on what your skills and, and and things you might be more drawn to one over another this ties in beautifully i think to ecology and to uh, ecosystems because to go up against the and this is a word i use all the time on the show but the monolith of power that exists and the monolith of propaganda and the, just the Goliaths, essentially. Yeah, right. um, you, we are going to need such a diverse ecosystem that has different actors doing different things at different points um, in order to increase its resilience and in order to also evade being trapped again in a power deficit. Like we need to constantly remain a moving target. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. And, and I, as an ecologist, I'm really drawn to that uh, metaphor of, of an ecosystem of approaches. I, th I think that's exactly right. We have to have a whole, um, you know, I mean, like I said, people have different skills, different interests, different talents. Um, and and th those change over time, right? So people mm. can be involved in different projects at different points. And I think, yeah. like, the main thing is that um, we have as many people involved in pushing for change as possible in the way that, that suits that they're most suited to. Um, so, but I think that, again, how do we join up these different groups so that yeah. they are working in concert and working in their, pushing in the same direction up against the powers, those Goliaths that you are describing. And, and that needs some kind of coordination, some kind of understanding between the different groups about the role that they're playing and how it benefits each other. Right. So, um, I think there's, there's definitely a need to have a kind of a common, uh, common aim, um, and I think um, 
that 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 needs a lot of discussion and, and <laughs> lots of open conversations between those different groups. Are we talking about a ooh, a centralization of action or just an incredibly communicative decentralized force, which I believe we can do, but have not seen very many examples yeah. of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of happening already. I think, you know, we're seeing, depending on, um, you know, a kind of a, 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 an understanding that one of the key tasks of the climate movement now is to keep fossil fuels in the ground, right? Like that's, yeah. that's seen as the task that we have to achieve. And I think that understanding manifests itself in lots of different ways. Um, but it's, it's no longer kind of seen as, oh, well, if we just each focus on, uh, individual emissions uh, or kind of the demand side or whatever that that's enough right no it's like we have to go after supply we have to keep that fossil fuels in the ground we have to stop these fossil fuel projects being uh, funded being licensed uh, we have to kind of dry up the, the recruitment pool of, of students going into the uh, fossil fuel industry and so on right like so so depending on which part of that puzzle that you're trying to work on there's different there's different tasks and there's different ways of doing it like some people are you know, pursuing legal challenges and are being really successful at like suing these companies and so on. Um, but the kind of the common understanding that's uniting the kind of climate movement at the moment is like, you know, we have to push back against the fossil fuel industry and, and that's, that's worth it. That's, I find really hopeful and exciting, but also like daunting as well. Cause it's, it's a Goliath task, like you said. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, we've got the UN secretary general on our side. Uh, mm. What what a hero this week! Do you do you remember what he said verbatim? Just that the fossil fuel industry are bastards. <laughs> We've got to stop <laughs> working with them. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I think I think there's this kind of been a long time. This kind of sense that well, it'd be better if we kind of could work in partnership with the industry and like you know maybe they could transition and you know if they've got all these resources, surely they can re redeploy them to help us with the clean transition. And mm. it just doesn't just doesn't work like that right these are the same companies yeah. that for 30 years have been distorting climate science misleading the public yeah. um trying to delay through lobbying and, and bribing yeah. politicians you know the yeah. kind of the most venal kind of corruption and and then we expect them to suddenly be good guys it's, it just doesn't work that way right so i think we have to recognize that until until we're powerful enough to force them to change they're just not going to and and that's going to really take a lot of organizing yeah. Sure. I do think there's something a little bit more nuanced, though. I mean, I think very many activists, even 10 years ago, would have thought uh, of the UN as a behemoth uh, representation of uh, philanthro capitalism and exemplar of sort of everything that's wrong, like neo-imperialism coming in in a way of like, oh, but we'll hold your hand as you get better type thing. Um, and yet the Secretary General is one of the biggest climate activists in the world, really, because of his platform. And so maybe there are, like, let's get into the weeds of it. Maybe there are people in, like, maybe not senior management, but middle management and fossil fuel companies that are up to date with the science. They have children. They are also starting to come around to the recognition that something has to change. Is it worth speaking with them? And then let's add a, just another level of complexity onto that which is obviously the labor movement is very frightened of these campaigns because they're worried about people's jobs mm. in a time of increasing inequality so can you speak to that right no i mean 
So I, I think there's a couple of things, I guess you'd have to try and unpack there from where I'm looking at it. So, Please. I mean, obviously there's the, trust, the need for a just transition and that's got to be um, central to kind of how the climate movement talks about how we... And by just transition, yeah. you mean... I mean, you know, involving those workers in the discussions about the kind of jobs that, that would be involved, that, that they could transition into in a low mm -hmm. carbon future, right? And the fact that we need to do that and at speed, but that, that has to be done you know, with consent and with those communities being supported and not just abandoned as has been done in the past. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's key. But at the same time, I think, um, I think you need to look at the way in which cultures within these organizations end up dominating and maintaining business as usual, even against the good intentions of the workers within those industries. Right. So, Absolutely. um, the, a lot of people go into those industries with the kind of the hope that they can change them from within and kind of like nudge them to do better policies, practices, and so on. I think, unfortunately, the, the cultures within those organizations end up kind of self-reinforcing and dominating over that, right? And sure. I think um, it's how how could you disrupt that? And I don't think you can necessarily do that very easily from the inside. I guess that that's that's the way that I I understand it, but. Um, there are, you know, interesting examples of uh, um, insiders who've become whistleblowers, for example, and that's mm. really been important and influential in, in terms of how ch change has been, you know, scrutiny gets to be brought about onto those companies and, and so on. Um, there's also, I think, um, we just have to really look at the timescales that we're dealing with and, and the kind of the business strategies that these companies have, right? So if we're talking about decarbonizing you know, half of global emissions in the next decade, as the IPCC say we have to do for 1.5. And then you compare that to, you know, how how much fossil fuel reserves are on the books of Shell or of Exxon or, you know, there was an analysis done just the other day by Carbon Tracker, where they put out this, this new uh, global database of all the fossil fuel projects that are being, uh, of all the reserves that these companies have. Um, and they came up with an answer that is like, there's seven times more fossil fuels on the books of these companies than we could afford to burn to stay within 1.5 degrees. Right. So, you know, we're talking about having to leave at least six, seven of, of that. And, and these companies are, are valued based on, on those reserves, right? Like yeah. Their whole um, business plan and all their loans and, and everything is, is premised on the fact that they're going to dig up that, those fossil fuels and burn them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so in a sense, that these companies, their business plan is to use crash through our climate targets and that's why they're not really viable actors even you know even if there are people within those organizations who want to do the right thing all right and um what is it that you think makes them think that it is a viable business model for a <laughs> burning planet <laughs> yeah right i mean that that's a really difficult question to answer i think I know. um i think there's there's probably different ways of thinking <laughs> as well you know there's this purely psychological one of how, how do people disassociate between um you know what they do at work and what they think at home and you know the the, the, the duties to care for the children and all the rest of it like you were saying yeah. before right like but we know that people can do that right we know that people can, yeah. can 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 believe one thing in one situation but then act a completely different way in another situation mm -hmm. um so that's to do with then our social organizations and how how kind of we organize as groups and, and things. So I guess, um, I, I mean, I guess for them, the, the, there's justifications around, well, they're just, just 
they're acting in legal ways, right? Um, they, they, no, at the moment, the, the law is that they can dig up this and sell it. So that's okay then. Um, yeah. There's also the kind of sense that, um, you know, well, we're only doing our small bit, <laughs> you know, um, so there's the kind of the, and if we didn't do it, somebody else would. would so that's this kind of, you know, drug dealer's defense. And then, so you've got all these self-justifications that say, well, you know, we're not the bad guys here. We're just selling a product. The consumers want to buy it. And if they didn't want to buy it, then there wouldn't be a problem. There's all of these kind of ways of kind of making the, these stories that kind of convince us that it's okay to just keep going with business as usual. Mm. Um, and yet they are the same companies who then spend millions of dollars lobbying um, governments to, to not take action and spend, you know, billions of dollars on, on um, greenwashing their image to make it seem as though they're taking action when they're not so that yeah. public don't know to ask for more. And in, so, so there's this, this kind of constant kind of perpetual kind of efforts to just keep going with the status quo and, yeah. and to, to resist change. And that's what has to be overcome. Um, so I think that the hardest thing maybe is this kind of sense that, well, people just don't believe that we will meet our targets, right? So, so there becomes a kind of common sense behind the scenes that actually, well, those climate targets are a bit of a joke, really. Everybody knows we're not going to meet them. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but then without then thinking through the consequences of that, of like, well, mm -hmm. if we don't meet them, then actually we're going to start seeing mass famine around the world and breakdown of societies and, yeah. you know, wars and conflict. Like th there is kind of like somehow again we've disassociated the implications of our choices with what the consequences will will be but i think a lot of that is in the marketing of these messages from uh the un <laughs> from cop uh 1.5 has become a dissociated number entirely even that like we don't say 1.5 degrees 1.5 degrees centigrade it's just 1.5 it is this magic number and it is so abstracted um, from the scale upon which it exists and represents, that people don't talk about 1.4 or 1.3, failing to understand that 0.1 of a degree has a huge, yeah. huge impact. We shouldn't be aiming for 1.5. We should be aiming for everything under 1.5. And this is kind of... Sorry, do you want to speak to that? Well, I think you're, you're hitting on something really, really important here. And again, this is a question that I guess goes back to scientists and how we, we communicate about that and and the way in which these uh these discussions have come out of a kind of a very scientific and technocratic framing mm -hmm. um rather than maybe more of a justice-centered framing of, of like what, what is it we're actually trying to achieve and what is yeah. it we're trying to prevent um but i was at a conference just this week where you know um they were talking about the fact that 1.5 is is you know definitely <laughs> Um, you know, not a safe target. We're already yeah. seeing like certain yeah. climate tipping points being being triggered where we're, we're looking at potentially the loss of ice sheets um, in Greenland and yeah. things that, that will kick in and, and will take a while to fully melt. But at yeah. that point, you can't reverse it, right? And they're saying that that could happen after we pass 1.5. And, and um, so there was a lot of alarm amongst the scientific uh, community and that, you know, they were really focused on um, trying to, get that message out there but again they're stuck within this language of of um climate tipping points or or 1.5 yeah. degrees and not necessarily then translating into that what does that actually mean for societies what does it mean 
to have all the world coastal cities kind of being inundated and right. um you know the fact that our ports won't be able to ship grain around the world and, and everything right what, what does that mean yeah. <laughs> and, and yet we get stuck in kind of talking about the, the kind of climate side of it rather than the social and the human side absolutely and i i am concerned about the potential backlash of um sort of diluting messages into these really simple um stickers or placards um for the public to understand because they are sort they are in a sense misleading right i think so many of the public think oh well if we hit 1.5 that that's it we're still fine whereas that is not the case like societies are already disappearing look at what has happened to pakistan look at what is happening across southeast mm. asia with yeah. flooding so much flooding and fires in other parts of the world um so i worry that people will if people do respond increasingly well and kind of come together to do what is necessary and then they reach the target that they have been told is the target only to realize that the target actually does not give the world that they were hoping um which is the continuation of at least something peaceable for those of us lucky to live in a peaceable part of the world yeah. you know i mean yeah. I, I think i think it's really important that we are honest like the, the changes that we've already seen those are locked in now, right? Like yeah. those are not going to go away if we if we stop burning fossil fuels, right? Yeah. It only gets worse and worse and keeps locking in more and more damage. So, yeah. like I, I think, I think there is a story around you know preventing worse, right? Preventing Absolutely. greater harm, preventing greater loss. That that's the story that we have to talk about. But also, you know, that, that the vision of of a low carbon future is not uh, actually <laughs> you know that there is positives there as well. So like you know that that and that's um. That's something that can be part of this story. But uh, I think going back to, to what you're saying, I think there is a real danger, though, that this 1.5 degrees, we're not, we're talking about it almost as if we, we are on track to reach it. And we're really, yeah, really not. Also right? that. <laughs> um, and yeah. th that's the thing that really, really concerns me at the moment is that there's a kind of a, a sense that um, just because governments have pledged that they're going to reduce emissions in the future, that that somehow means that we will, right? Yeah. No. And I think we really have to interrogate that. And it's really clear to me that, for example, in the UK, um, you know, the government's just announced new oil and gas licensing in the North Sea. They're talking about opening up fracking in the UK. That's a continuing expansion of the fossil fuels industry, right at the time where all, all the world scientists, you know, Antonio Guterres at the UN, are all saying, you know, we have to leave all new fossil fuel developments, uh, stop investing in them and, and leave those fossil fuels in the ground, right? Uh, we're seeing in the United States that, again, just yesterday, you had the head of J.P. Morgan Bank being interrogated in Congress uh, about about their continued investments in fossil fuels. And he said you know, that, that, that um, for America to um, walk away from oil and gas would be to put them on the road to hell. Well, I'm sorry, but actually, it's exactly the opposite. It's like continued investment in that is what's taking us to hell, right? And... Um, for the head of JP Morgan, the largest investment bank in the world, to be thinking that is just obscene. And again, just shows that we have to really challenge these institutions, like these banks in particular, who, I mean, JP Morgan's invested over $400 billion in oil and gas uh, projects since the Paris Agreement. Right? Oh, what? Yeah. Like, oh. And I think these are the kind of facts that I think we need to be much better at communicating because it, yeah. it directs our attention to where, how the system is, is maintaining itself and yeah. continuing to prop up this fossil uh, capital accumulation, right? So we have to go after that. And um, 
I think academics have a real duty and myself, but I think, you know, journalists or, or, um, you know, we need to be interrogating this all the time in our media. And yet it's kind of the government's still getting a free pass, even yeah. in this, you know, even as it's becoming so obvious that these decisions are going to really, really, uh, to take us to a destructive future. So yeah, I don't know. I'm just. No, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting. I think it goes, it leads back to power again, because I think for the big boss of JP Morgan, um, an America without fossil fuels would be a form of hell for him and for his pals who live such a fundamentally different lifestyle to most people on the planet. Um, that is, they, they are in their little paradise, even though I'm sure they all have mental health problems. Um, and so I think it's also pointing fingers to what they mean. Yeah. Like it is the exploitation of others that allows them their lifestyles. That So his hell is a more equitable society. And yeah. that can be our heaven. Um, rather than sort of letting these words float out, again, as you said, without much but interrogation. I think that's true. But it's also, it's also kind of bizarrely wrong as well, right? Because, I, I mean... I'm not disagreeing with what you were saying, but, but, um, you know, fossil fuels are like in the UK, for example, right now, like or off, uh, offshore wind and, and solar are like nine times cheaper than fossil fuels. Yeah. No, you know, yeah. They're, they're a much better investment in terms of energy supply for the, for us. Right. And yet we're still propping up these industries because they're the ones that have that put the lobbying in and have the ears of government are, are properly connected into decision makers, have the think tanks working for them and so on. Right. It's it's not even that it makes good economic sense. It's that it, it makes political sense to those elites, right? And that's that's what we have to again um, really talk talk about it like that because I think there's a sense that yeah. um, again the, the just transition would mean more expensive energy or or yeah. uh, um, you know people being laid off because there wasn't enough jobs or whatever. And that's it's the opposite, right? Like these, and that's really key to how we should be helping people understand the need for this transition. I completely agree with you. Um, and then I think it speaks to the fact that markets in no way reflect reality, right? Yeah. Um, so it's all speculation. So if enough powerful people believe that oil and gas is the future, it will remain a good investment because they are dominating or sort of creating the paradigm that we all exist in. And yet at the same time, as you said, oil and gas it is incredible when you look at a graph or a chart of the decrease in prices over oil and gas. It is absolutely amazing. And also with the IPCC reports, because of oil and gas and because more people are becoming aware of what's going on, um, the sort of catastrophic climate event of six degrees, we, we are making progress. We're not on progress to make 1.5, yeah. but we are making progress compared to 10, sort of 12 years ago. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, I think that's that's probably true. I think there's... I think you got, so one of the things is the, the, the problem of sunk costs, right? And, yeah. and, and, and the, yeah. that brings, um, the issue of committed emissions into the picture, which again is something that we don't talk about enough. I don't think so. Can you explain what, yeah. um, can you explain what both are actually sunken costs and okay. committed emissions? So, so by sunk costs, I kind of mean the idea that we built all of this infrastructure that serves the fossil fuel industry, right? It's all the, all the shipping containers, the oil tankers, the, the pipelines, all of the power stations, right? They want to run those for as long as they can, because once once they've invested in them, they have to first of all pay off the investment uh, and get their capital back. 
and then they have to um, make as much money off the fixed capital that they've got existing and they want to maintain that for as long as possible because mm -hmm. at that point it's cheaper to run it than to tear it down and to build something else right so so the the, the logic is to to get as much out of those that infrastructure as you possibly can uh, in terms of profit um what that then means is that those projects that are being built right now commit us to the lifetime emissions of those projects okay. or at least if they were to, to to not be retired early right right um and so we're still seeing new fossil fuel projects going in those are going to run for what 40 years at a minimum probably and, and all of that time they're going to be putting out emissions right and this is this is the the crazy thing because again we know we have to half emissions in 10 years if we're to be on track for 1.5 so any new projects that goes in now are going to blow that uh, I mean, yeah. uh, we already actually we're going to blow that with existing infrastructure, right? So, yeah. so um, that's where it kind of the, the science is telling us we're going to have to retire these these infrastructures early, which means that some people are going to start making a loss on their investment, um, and they don't want to see that, so they're pushing back against it. And 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 the same is true um, in in general. And so what we're seeing is that we've inflated. Um, I mean, it's being talked about as like an, a carbon bubble, right, in, in our economy where, um, you know, these companies are completely overvalued for the reasons I was telling you before, Shell and, and so on. They're valued against their reserves, but they can't, if they don't dig them up, then those companies don't have the value that they say that everyone treats them as having. And therefore, people's investments aren't going to be paid back, right? And and that's then a huge financial liability. And that's what these banks don't want to acknowledge because they can see that if we do start this transition that they stand make a big loss on their previous investments so they keep doubling down and that's what's really really dangerous um because that's the kind of the, the logic of, of of that means that we just keep growing this bubble and and what that puts is more and more of these kind of stranded assets these sunk costs that once the bubble pops the crash will be even harder right mm. so so that there's a lot of people um economists and so on who, who realize that it's like like lord's Nicholas Stern and so on, who are trying to say, look, no, we really need to deflate this bubble as, as quickly as possible um, through um, you know, careful policy, um, uh, regulating the, these companies, regulating investments um, you know, in the city and so on. Um, and, and that's just not happening yet. And the government's actually going in the opposite direction, right? So again, we really need to think very strategically about if we don't want to, to you know, this transition has is going to be disruptive. Um, and that could be, but you know we, we, what we said before. We we need it to be as just as possible as well. So so like the, these two things get more and more difficult to to achieve. Um, the longer we let this go on, because ultimately you get into the situation where you get really big economic shocks, and then it's much harder to have these kind of um, managed transition. Right. <laughs> so every which way. <laughs> Catastrophe in every which way. <laughs> well, I guess. I guess that I'm not trying to put it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this we got. It's trying to understand why why it is that we keep getting trapped in 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 recreating the same problems. Okay, and and I'm not saying that it has to be catastrophe every which way. I think there are very clever solutions that people are proposing. Um, often they involve kind of nationalizing some of these companies, yeah. or, or they involve you know winding down the companies by massively increasing dividends and not investing in capital expenditure so that, that investors stay invested in those companies and so on. Um, 
this goes a little bit beyond my my, my knowledge, but it's kind of like Fascinating. people are trying to figure out how to do this, but mm. it doesn't work if we keep inflating this bubble and keep licensing new fossil fuel projects and so on. Right, right understood. And how do you do you think that um, the I want to tie this back into movements and I want to tie this back into your work. Do you think that the from your research are the best messages, um, things like just stop oil when dealing with the complexities that you have just described? The fact that not only does this uh, resource uh, point us towards uh, climate overshoot and earth overshoot, um, that using it is built on extractive capitalism, that continued use of it will also possibly cause a financial crash. Yeah. Is a message like just stop oil, is that the most important thing that we can do right now? That's a really good question. And I think um, there are, hmm, sorry, I'm going to have to stop and think no, about this one because it's really it. tricky. Yeah. Um, it goes back to that, that that thing around the salience problem, right? Like, mm. how do you tell these stories in a way that, that connects with people? And I think there isn't one narrative that works or one story. And it's not going to happen in one single soundbite, right? We need to have these conversations throughout our lives in all different parts of our lives. <clears throat> but if it comes to mobilizing around certain demands, then I think something like Just Stop Oil is actually a very good demand to be mobilizing around at this time. Um, I think also things like Insulate Britain, actually, mm. I think um, it, it says what it is on the tin, right? Like, it's, mm. so, so I think... And it's the thing, it, it, I think the more of these demands that we have that are, you know, have these co-benefits to them that we can see immediately, like, you know, climate action, it's, well, it, you know, is, is Insulate Britain a climate campaign or is it actually a one about energy poverty, right? I mm. think um, it, it doesn't have to be either, right? And th that's the point is we need to grow movements and interconnect movements of different, yeah. around shared solutions to different problems. Yeah. And, and that's the key thing is that we need... Um, so, you know, just a boil. Okay. Is that, is that, um, again, a climate campaign? Well, obviously yes, but also maybe it's an energy security campaign as well. Right. Um, because right now, um, being tied to fossil fuels is what's leading to this massive price rise and, and, and energy mm. crisis. So if we can help join up those dots and help people see like their concerns are shared concerns, even if, um, for different reasons that's how you build powerful movements in my in my view um and that partly around around um demands but i think it's also um you know learning how to to listen to each other and and you know like you were saying like how, how does an environmental group like just a boil go to trade union um, who represents oil, uh, oil workers and have a conversation about what the just transition looks like. I mean, that's going to have to be part of this too. And so it's not just about what demands we make, it's how we talk and listen to each other and, and shape those demands from, from those in understanding. From your research, are there any, hmm, what kind of messages could infiltrate these movements in a bid to stop them joining up with other movements like if a fossil fuel company wanted to yeah be smart and send in their spy 
like in that way, in the way that you know the labor movement is frightened of a just transition because they're worried about jobs. Yeah. What other messages like that are we also sort of having to combat in the shadows? I think one of them would be the kind of the emergency message as well. So okay. like that the climate crisis can't wait for anything. Uh, mm -hmm. So so other issues around justice or con that concerns about you know um, global justice or racial justice or whatever don't matter because right now we're in an emergency and all that matters is that we stop burning fossil fuels. Um, and I think mm. that would be a really dangerous message if it was taken that way, um, yeah. because that's one that can really erode this, this ability Absolutely. to form connections between movements. That's what we need to, in order to build very strong and powerful movements that can stand up to the, the powerful forces that we were talking about earlier. Mm. Yeah. Do you have any others? This is fascinating. So I think, um, I think you're right. I think, that um, the climate crisis means that we're going to shrink the economy. Or have to, to respond to that, we, we're going to need degrowth or something like that, which I probably would agree in principle with the kind of the analysis behind that. But but if it, that gets sent out as a message of we're going to um, create a forced recession or something like that, that could be really dangerous as well. Because I think historically the environmental movement, the labor movement, they've managed to be kept apart from quite successfully by, like you were saying, um, worries about jobs. And, and, and if you start having an environmental movement that's saying, oh, what we need to do is is shrink the economy, that sounds to a lot of people like what the environmental movement one is to, to lay people off, right? Yeah. So I think talking about that in terms of you know, universal um, jobs guarantees or, or universal income and, and, and as key demands of the climate movement in order to allay those concerns, uh, and, and show people that, that actually their prim primary needs will be still met and they're, they're not going to be forced out on the street or whatever. That's that's yeah. kind of key. Um, so I think those are the conversations that I'd like to see happening much more. I don't think they're happening enough at the moment. Yes, but the nuance, <laughs> the understand. Totally. I, I remember about a year ago, um, I was really fortunate to have this sort of amazing array of American scientists on the show. Um, and uh, they all sort of said, you know, um, we we are just not going to survive in the way that we think we can without fossil fuels. Uh, in fact, the world is kind of over <laughs> because without a fossil fuel economy. Um, and also, we do we have to recognize what fossil fuel gives us in order to recognize what life will be without it. So just the fact that it's incredibly energy dense. Um, even though we use it, it's so energy dense that we use it incredibly inefficiently. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, but they were really adamant that there was sort of like no way out economically, um, socially. And then I started to speak to interview more and more like social people, people on the social side and got introduced to degrowth. And it just sort of made me aware that people will always come at the problem through the paradigm that they sort of exist or even the paradigm that they want. Um, left, right, center, it's going to look really, really different. Um, but especially on nations that are built on uh, A, imperialism, and B, capitalism, like the UK and the US, I think we are the ones that are experiencing the biggest crisis of imagination mm. because that is our history. And to imagine the UK or the US, the US in particular, without capital, yeah. like what? what is that? It no longer is the US. Yeah. Um, so I think it's so important to dig into the nuances of this message and to also think of what the counterattack would be and be ready with a counter counterattack 
<laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> because... totally. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that, again, comes from being more careful about how we, um, yeah. So, so I think one of the problems with the climate movement at the moment, or in, in my view, is that we focus too much on the science. And we were talking about the numbers earlier on and things. Um, and listen, again, not saying that the science isn't important because I think it really helps um, us understand um, when we're being bullshitted, right? Like, yeah. but, but I think, yeah, um, but I think what we really need to do is is talk about these imaginaries about what the future is going to be mm -hmm. like, what what, what mm. it is that we want our society to be, what we think we're living in right right now. Yeah. Um, those are the conversations that I think we probably need to focus our, our campaigning on. Absolutely. Um, and and so it's just saying listen to the science um i think is is not a good a good strategy um and i'm saying that as someone who comes from a scientific background and it was the science that brought me into the movement but i i really don't think that's the way that most people are going to get uh get, um included so starting with people's concerns about you know where they are uh starting with their values and then showing them how those values are part of the transition that we're trying to reach um, that's that's key um so yeah um th there's other people who know better how to do that than me but um th th there's really interesting work that's being done in the uk for example by climate outreach about how to try and have those conversations yeah i get a lot of narrative people on the show it's really really fascinating it's definitely sort of the crux of everything and one of the um i haven't worked it out yet but one of like the narrative strategies that i've been toying with is like trying to explain to people that the future is frightening when you because of the present that you currently exist in i.e that your politicians yeah you exercise your democracy only by or your democratic right only by a vote every few years um and the people that you vote for don't listen to you and kind of go back like of course you would be frightened of whatever future living in that present because mm. you have absolutely no agency whereas if you want to change the world even though the i <laughs> even though that seems like it'd be more frightening initially because there'd be more unknown variables. I think actually there'd be less unknown variables because people would be feeling a sense of agency and therefore, well, if I'm trying to do something, at least I know the changes that I want the, to be made in the world will have a better chance of succeeding because I'm helping. Yeah. You know, yeah, this kind yeah. of mix of like conservative, uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and responsibility and like leftist caring <laughs> or something. I think, I think your point about agency there is really key. I think um, I think there's been, I think that's, what, for me, where people struggle uh, with all of this. And it's one of the reasons that is, yeah. is they struggle with taking in the crisis is because they don't feel that sense of agency. And, and so, so we go into states of disavowal where we just, we block off the problem, we hive off yeah. from it, and we just say, nothing to do with me, it doesn't fit in my daily life, I don't want yeah. to deal with it. So I'm just going yeah. to not think about it, which is, to be honest, a fairly reasonable response. If you feel that there is nothing you can do, then why spend all your time and energies worrying yeah. about it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but we've got to get over that somehow. We've got to help people um, feel that that there is something that they can do, so that they can start taking on the enormity of what it is that we have to the task that's before us. And part of that is to recognise that we're not alone, right? Like that's got to be key. Is that this is we're only playing our our part as part of a much wider movement that we're connected to, and um, you know. Even if we're in an organization, that's just one organization amongst hundreds of organizations that are active trying to push for change. So recognizing that we are part of a much bigger uh, force in society 
um, and that we're just adding our our bit to that. That's I think a really empower, empowering message that um, that helps us take that step from from being this it's somebody else's problem to know it's my problem, but only I'm just doing my part of of it. Um, so those stories of collective agency, I think, which we we have in our history, um, mm, especially yeah. you know, there's great stories in the British history about how we achieved the progress and the social change that we we have seen through through social movements. Right, we yeah. need to be much better at telling those stories and reminding people of that of that uh, legacy. Um, yeah. And I think one other thing is actually being really visible about our activism uh, in. It doesn't have to be labeled as activism if you if you some people would rather talk about it in change making or whatever but like yeah. um being really visible that that's what we're doing and talking about it with our friends and families yeah and one of the things that i'm trying to do at the moment is to encourage more scientists to be and, and academics to be publicly involved in in activism mm-hmm. um to try and normalize it right to try and mm-hmm. make it seem as though to, to make it uh, seem um, both necessary and a legitimate activity to be involved in. Yeah. And um, so, so colleagues and I wrote a paper recently where we kind of set out why we think it is now justified for scientists to be involved in direct action campaigns, for example. Um, and that kind of runs it up against some of the social norms in, in science. But I think it's really got to the point now that we are in such a crisis that it needs to be seen that scientists are out there on the streets alongside the social movements that have been inspired by the the, the science that they've done, right? Absolutely. Um, so I think that seems like basic solidarity to me, but but I think um, it's also, I think, really important as a communicative act, right? If, if those people who have the knowledge are seen to be taking those kind of actions, yeah, that sends a really powerful signal to society that something's gone wrong. And we need yeah. to see much more of that. I think, you know, Action as communication, where we embody our own beliefs through what we're doing rather than just saying them, I think is really important. Um, there's this kind of problem, I think, with especially with these issues that seem so big and enormous that, and as we were saying, don't fit in our, our daily lives, that um, that they seem almost surreal. They don't seem, um, and one of the ways in which we do um, kind of cut ourselves off from it is by just pretend is is by um sorry if you see a messenger who's saying this is really important but then they're acting quite calmly and reasonably and 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 just going on with their daily life that sends a really strong message that's that uh mm. it's incoherent right that yeah. that um that almost they don't believe what they what they that they're saying that this is yeah. a crisis right so i think Greta Thunberg's really right about that when she said you know if we're act as though you're in an emergency because we really yeah. are and i think that's that's um hopefully helping people wake up to the the crisis and and then start thinking about what it is that they want to do i'm glad you mentioned that paper um because it was published in nature for anyone listening that's not in science academia that is the top science journal in the world and were your conclusions not that you you found that the public are becoming more aware or responding better to the message because now scientists are joining the movement well, I think uh, we're still waiting for data to 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 kind of back Don't that up for sure. That up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but it's definitely what we think that based on other evidence, but, but from other areas, I think we think that that's definitely likely to be the case. And right, okay. Um, what we're also able, I think, to say is 
that it's <clears throat> by having scientists involved in, in these kind of activities where they are taking part in direct action or, or street protests or that they are, you know, publicly speaking out uh, against the government policies and so on. Mm. It does lend a lot of credibility and legitimacy because the public do trust science and scientists more than probably any other social group, according to social surveys, right? Um, because they know that they're interested in getting to the truth. <laughs> and that's that's what's been motivating them. And when, when scientists discover truths that are um, alerting us to, to, to really serious risks and dangers, then the public expect them to, to then do something about it, right? Yeah. Um, and again, th we have evidence that, that backs it up. The, the, the public have expectations on scientists that they will speak out if they see, you know, issues of, of national or social concern. Um, because they expect that scientists are working in the public good, and I think they are mostly, right? So, so, so what, what's the responsibility on us as academics then, um, knowing what we know, knowing that we're heading for disaster, knowing that, that governments aren't doing nearly enough to avert it, in fact, are actually pouring fuel on the fire, what do we do? Uh, and I think um, for us to not then uh, speak out about that, to not resist that, would be to kind of really... Um, you know, fail in our duty, both as scholars, but also as citizens. Um, and I, I can't, so, so for yeah. me, it's become re really important to kind of, to help uh, activate and mobilize as many scholars as possible um, in solidarity with, with, you know, those people who are on the streets and have he heard the message of the urgency that we're in and are trying to do something to get us out of this mess. Um, and I, I think that's that's definitely shifting. Like there's a there's been a big shift in the last few years about that. Wonderful. What an important note I think to end on there, Aaron. Scientists, if you're listening and you're not out in the streets, get on it. Citizens yeah. as well. <laughs> Find out what you can do to get involved in the creation of a better future for everybody. Aaron, thank you so much for your time today. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. My my final question, of course, is who would you like to platform? Hmm. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, well, I, th I think based on what we were just saying in the conversation, I think, mm -hmm. you know, I th I'd really like to see more conversations between, you know, um, workers and, and environmentalists together and yeah. talking about their shared concerns. And so yeah. like, I'd, I'd like to platform those kind of conversations between, okay. um, you know, to, to understand what we have in common and, and also where, where at the moment we're still, you know, not supporting each other enough in, in building the better world that we need. Wonderful. Aaron, thank you so much. If you want to learn more about Aaron's work, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly essays inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.